Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Well, good morning again. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. And if I said to you that today is a very special anniversary, would you know what happened a year ago today? What happened in your life a year ago today? Is today a particularly important anniversary in your life? Is it the anniversary of your birthday, which we call your birthday? Is it the anniversary of your rebirthday, which we call your rebirthday? Is it the anniversary of... Um, the birth of one of your children? Is it the anniversary of your wedding? Is it the anniversary of some event that radically changed your life forever? Is it the anniversary of the death of a loved one? Anniversaries are um, significant markers in our lives, and they mark us. And so today is the one-year anniversary um, of the Uvalde school shooting. One year ago today, a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. What kind of anniversary is this for those families and that community and our country? the members of law enforcement who did not respond as one might hope, and the ones who ultimately did. How does this anniversary affect first responders? And the people at the funeral home who did every single one of the funerals. And how does it affect the lives of those who went? There there were people um, who felt absolutely led to go to Uvalde and sit with people in their grief. One of those people um, who, I mean, he tells this in his own account of of the day uh, a year ago. Um, He turned to his wife and he said, we have to go. We have to go. And they loaded up their family and they went. Um, His name's Matthew McConaughey. And he's from this little part, this rural part of Texas. We have to go. They just sat with people. They just sat, sat with them. Another person who went, his name is uh, Tamir Khalifa. Um, Determined to go, just felt like I'm supposed to go. And I'm just going to sit with people in their grief. How long do we sit with people in their grief? And how do we sit with them on these kinds of anniversaries? Somebody in your life is experiencing an anniversary today that is wonderful and celebratory, and we want to celebrate with them. Others are experiencing today 
as a devastating anniversary, a wretched kind of anniversary, something that is a marker in time that marks their life forever. And so let's be attentive to that today. Let's ask people, like, is today the anniversary of something that really matters a lot to you? And if so, what is it? Let's attend to grief because grief matters. And let's be the kind of people who don't forget. Heather Zeiger is going to join us next. She's a science writer. We're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk in depth about one subject with Heather. And it's the subject of fetal tissue research. And as soon as I say that word, um, there's probably a part of your heart that just screams. And so I recognize that. And I recognize that when we talk about um, research and when I talk about the ways in which you and I have been served throughout our lives through this kind of research, um, the ethical questions that we must ask as Christians are really significant. And Heather is going to help us walk into and through this conversation. So Heather, Heather Zeiger joins us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Heather Zeiger joins us now. She's a freelance science writer um, out of Dallas, Texas. She also serves at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. And one of her recent projects has been to write for and then edit a massive um, research report on fetal tissue. And so, Heather, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us unpack some of this. Hey, good to be here, Carmen. Okay, so where where does one start a conversation about fetal tissue research? Like, what's the right first question to ask? So I think one of the questions you want to ask is, what, how do we use fetal tissue in in science today? Do we even use fetal tissue in science today? And where are we getting all of this fetal tissue from? I think those are some good questions that we could start with. Um, and so, first of all, the vast majority of fetal tissue, so this is tissue from uh, fetuses that have died, almost all of it comes from elective abortion. So there is a connection between using this tissue in scientific research and obtaining it from uh, abortion uh, facilities. So a lot of this came to light back in, uh, I believe it was 2017, was uh, when the Center for Medical Progress, so the, this is a group that went undercover to look at uh, what, how Planned Parenthood, where those steps are between when an abortion happens and how a research institution receives that tissue. And that kind of middleman are tissue procurement organizations. And so they saw that in fact, there was money being traded. There was, uh, there was a lot of, um, a lot of legally and ethically contentious things going on. Um, behind the scenes. So this is commodifying um, human body parts. This is commodifying fetal tissue. As Christians, we we object to abortion because it's uh, killing a fetus, it's killing a, a nascent human life. 
But even those who may not object to abortion were very disturbed by what was going on with this uh, tissue procurement organizations, the negotiations that would go on, in particular, changing the uh, medical procedure to ensure that certain parts, uh, certain uh, body parts were preserved because they were requested by uh, the tissue procurement organization. So this was a whole, uh, this was a whole uh, mess. There was a bunch of ethically contentious issues. So out of that, originally this report and my predecessor was who started this report they they originally wanted to write this report in response to to these videos and our executive director testified when there was a congressional hearing well you know flash forward a few years and we were working on this during the coronavirus uh, pandemic so in 2020 so we were working on this in 2019 2020 and so you have different types of issues that start coming up um, and you also see the differences um, in how the NIH is funding fetal tissue research, even, even with uh, the Biden administration, uh, where they were more friendly to abortions than the Trump administration. So even so, you see a change in how the NIH is uh, no, uh, now wants researchers who are applying for research grants to justify why they can't use some of these alternatives to fetal mm. tissue research. Uh, and, and in fact, they have to they have to not only say, well, why can't you use the alternatives? Uh, they have to justify their justification, basically. So you see, uh, you see a good change here. I think this is a good change is that we're kind of veering away from the use of human fetal tissue for research purposes. Having said that, it is still used for some things, uh, particularly for research involving, say, uh, I believe one of the big ones right now is uh, HIV, HIV uh, drugs. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's for creating either um, mouse models that have certain features or that you're trying to look for how a drug is uh, metabolized or interacts with certain body parts like the liver and that kind of thing. All right, Heather, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. One of the things that um, I think people will be interested to learn is what are the alternatives so that, you know, mm -hmm. we can advocate for people to use alternatives to using aborted fetal tissue for research. Um, but then also maybe, you know, it, maybe it's not so obvious to everyone what are the ethical concerns that Christians have about the use of human fetal tissue in research? So could we address both of those questions after the break? Sure. Great. So we're going to continue our conversation with Heather Zeiger. She is a science writer. She also served um, as the managing editor for the Fetal Tissue Research Report. So there's no better person to be talking about uh, talking with uh, about this than Heather Zeiger. So we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Continuing our conversation with Heather Zeiger, we are talking 
about the fetal tissue research report, which you can find at cbhd.org. It is uh, the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, cbhd.org. The fetal tissue report is actually um, in the in the banner header um, right there when you get to the site. Um, Heather, let's let's. Let's start with what are the alternatives? Um, I know that's sort of where the report ends, but what are the alternatives to using aborted fetal tissue for the kinds of research we're talking about? Yeah, so there's actually some really interesting alternatives, not just from an ethics standpoint. They are um, they are less ethically contentious, but also from a scientific standpoint, they make for better models. This is partly why the NIH is trying to... Uh, uh, incentivize people to use these alternatives, not just the ethics, but also they are better scientific models. And Carmen, this goes with uh, kind of a, a theme in my writing, which is good science is ethical science. So one good ethical uh, alternative is, and I'm going to use a big word here, but it's actually it's actually not not a hard concept. It's induced pluripotent stem cells. So these are stem cells that are made from adult cells. So like skin, for example, cells that self-renew. And they've had genetic factors turned back on and other factors turned back off. So now they are they look like embryonic stem cells, but they're not from an embryo. They uh, do not become an embryo. And so these cells can be guided into becoming a different cell type. And that's really neat because you can then use these cells to engraft them into mouse models or animal models. And we want to be able to use animal models before we ever do anything in humans. That's part of ethical science there is we want to check everything before we ever test anything in humans. Another thing that you can do that involves pluripotent stem cells is you can create these things called organoids, which in the news they call them, they like to call them mini brains and mini kidneys. Well, they're not exactly mini brains or mini kidneys. What they are is a three-dimensional cluster of cells that are all the cell types you would find like in a kidney or a liver or brain. So for example, um, fetal tissue from abortions was used to study uh, the Zika virus back when that was uh, uh, more prevalent and it was in the news. They were trying to figure out how does the Zika virus infect the brain of a developing fetus. So they would use aborted fetal tissue to study this. Well, an alternative are brain organoids. And these aren't necessarily mini brains, but these are a collection of three-dimensional clump of cells that has a lot of the cells you find in the brain and those cells interact with each other and so they're able to do some of this work with zika virus using organoids um, you can also do uh, you can also use pluripotent stem cells and organoids they've done some of this studying um, SARS-CoV-2 so that's the virus that mm. uh, causes COVID-19 they've done this too uh, they've used these alternatives to study uh, SARS-CoV-2, they've, they've used this for looking at drug metabolism. So sometimes you want to see, well, how does this drug interact, particularly with the liver, because that's where we get some drug metabolism. Mm -hmm. Well, you can use liver organoids to, they've used that to look at some drug metabolism. So these are just a few uh, different examples. You can have mice that have uh, 
that have been genetically altered so that they have certain human features without having to engraft them with human fetal tissue. Uh, also, you can use different animal models. So for example, when you're studying SARS-CoV-2, um, mice don't have the ACE2 receptor that, that the coronavirus latches onto in human lungs, but hamsters do. So you can, you can take a look, you can be creative here and look at some other alternatives. Yeah, which I think all of that leads us, um, I mean, would lead us into a conversation that maybe we'll have on another time at another time, Heather. Um, and that is about like the use of mice, the use of hamsters, mm-hmm. the use of pigs, the use of puppies, the use of monkeys, like, right. So could we talk mm-hmm. maybe on a future time about the way animals are used um, in particularly medical research, um, but in other research as well? Because what we're talking about ultimately is creating benefits for human beings um, and we're either, in this case, when we talk about fetal tissue, like it's at the expense of other human life. And then, you know, what is the ethical decision that I make um, about whether or not I'm going to benefit from, like, am I going to take the drug? Am I going to have the procedure that it, it was ultimately developed by and through the use of fetal tissue, aborted fetal tissue? Um, and I know that was a conversation, you know, surrounding um, some versions of the coronavirus vaccine, but it's a real conversation that people don't have when their kid needs some kind of cancer therapy. And it is a therapy that was developed in this way and we use it, um, you know, or they have some uh, blood disorder and the drug that's being used was developed um, through these methodologies. And they don't ask those questions. They just they just want the drug for their kid. And so can you just talk with us about, you know, just quickly about the ethical um, conversations we need to be having about how we do benefit from these and using um, using drugs and procedures that have been developed in ways that we don't find ethical. And yet we find a way to rationalize the use of them. Yeah. So we have to. And that's one of those things where it's not the same thing. Um, and then this was a big discussion we had when we were talking about uh, coronavirus vaccines and using uh, cell lines that originally came from an aborted fetus, but are no longer, you're not continuously having to abort fetuses to get these cell lines. So the source was not good, was morally uh, problematic, but the use is not recreating that moral problem. So here's the deal, Carmen, is that in one sense, we we have trouble, like not, not any of us, and I'm trained as a scientist, I can't trace back how a drug was developed originally, and then asking, well, how is it developed now? We should be able to ask those questions, we should know, and that should be transparent. Um, in some cases, you know, some things aren't transparent because of propriety. I think as Christians, we need to be as aware as possible of where these products come from, where pharmaceuticals come from, um, as much as you can. And to ask about that and to ask, is there an alternative if um, if that's an option? If it's not an option, I think the best thing to do is to actually go uh, go back to asking, uh, pre- pushing scientists to be creative. Like I think sometimes people are afraid to say, hey, 
I don't, I'm afraid to tell a scientist, hey, be more creative. And it's like, no, 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 push the scientific community to be creative, to come up with better solutions, to come up with alternatives, because it turns out sometimes alternatives are actually uh, not only better ethically, they also work better. Um, a good example was uh, Christians put a lot of pressure on like, we don't, we are very concerned about embryonic stem cell research. So I, I spoke on this and wrote on this in the early 2000s. And, you know, we have a problem with destroying embryos in order to create therapeutics. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Yamanaka was uh, a Japanese uh, scientist. And in a New York Times article in 2007, he said, when I saw the embryos under the microscope, I suddenly realized there was such a small difference between it and my daughters. He has two daughters. And he decided mm. there has to be a different way than destroying mm. embryos. So Yamanaka mm. came up with the Yamanaka factors, which these are the genetic factors that you turn on in regular cells, like skin cells, to create induced pluripotent stem cells. In other mm. words, he was convicted by the fact that those embryos were not much different than his daughter's. He then decided there's got to be a different way. He invested resources and hard work and all of that. And now he has a Nobel Prize for having discovered those factors. So mm. here you have an alternative that was motivated by moral, by moral lines. And that, that alternative turns out to not only, not only is it ethically better, but it actually works better. So, so to me, that's where Christians can have, I, I, you know, I don't ever want someone to sit here and decide I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give my child some cancer treatment because, you know, somewhere, so, somehow, somewhere, right, somebody was doing it was something unethical. Yeah. Right. Instead, right. if we can in, instead uh, highlight scientists like Yamanaka, if we mm -hmm. can if we can understand what's going on at the beginning and maybe ha and talk about like, hey, let's have a different science. I would like to fund different science, maybe have, um, you know, um, alternative and research uh, institutions, yeah. you know. And encourage our young people to, to enter this field. Absolutely. Hey, Heather, we got to leave it right there. Um, I feel like we should circle back around not only to this topic, but to many other conversations that have now been raised in our hearts and minds um, as a byproduct of this conversation. You guys can connect with Heather and you can get the full report at cbhd.org. You're looking for the fetal tissue research report. Um, every part of it is just excellent, and we'll continue this conversation with Heather in um, in the coming weeks. Check out the conference. It's also available online June 22nd to 24th. You can get those that information as well at cbhd.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's take a quick break for Breakpoint. In a 2021 survey of teenage high school students, three out of five, three out of five, that's 60% female high school students in America describe themselves as persistently sad, having feelings of hopelessness and depression. Three out of 10 high school boys, depression, substance abuse, suicide, suicide ideation, Anxiety, uh, ADHD, behavior disorders. Um, children in America are suffering. Children in America are suffering. 
We're talking about millions of kids across the United States who have very real mental disorders. And that means we're talking about millions of American families who have children um, with mental disorders, some of them serious mental disorders. And let me just say that any mental disorder your child has is serious for you and your family. So when a child has a mental health disorder, um, how does the church respond? How do we as parents respond? How do we raise broken children in a broken world? Um, And how do we acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the midst of it? Leslie Schmucker um, not only has personal experience in this, but she's willing to walk with the rest of us into the conversation. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Leslie Schmucker is joining us now. Um, We're going to have what I hope is maybe just the beginning of a conversation today with Leslie because I have about 50 questions and we don't have time for all of those. So Leslie, welcome to Mornings with Carmen for your first visit. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to have a conversation about lingo in general, but maybe we'll start with this. Um, We live a long way from the Garden of Eden, and yet somehow we still have this expectation that children are going to be born perfect with perfect bodies Mm -hmm. and perfect minds. Um, You actually know better. So what do you know about living with, raising, and loving a child with a mental health disorder? Uh, One thing that I know um, is that it doesn't fit into any categories. There is no frame of reference. Uh, Our daughter Jacqueline um, is the focus of the book, and we knew that we could not raise her and discipline her in the same way that we did our other two mentally healthy kids. So, um, and it is all consuming and I honestly don't know how people do it without the Lord. Um, let's talk a little, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's an honest assessment. I thought you were going to say, I honestly don't know how people do it as single parents because that's, that's that's, yeah, yeah, I have a child, I have, uh, I have, uh, my youngest, uh, stepson. Um, so, you know, I have a child who. Um, has some of these challenges and his challenges are different than Jacqueline's, but he is in the kind of classroom that, um, you know, that you have served in over time and that many kids with all varieties of special needs find themselves in, um, Mm -hmm. in school. And, um, and, you know, Matthew's needs are different and his concerns are different than others. But I can tell you the kids in his class um, who are being raised in a single parent environment, like that's overwhelming. So I thought you were going to say, I don't know how people do this as a single parent. No, I well, certainly don't know. Too. Yeah, I yeah. certainly don't know how they do it without the Lord. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, my husband and I were a team and out of necessity. Um, and it was just amazing the way that it worked was if I was having a low day, he usually was on point and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we were able to really lean on each other, but also divide and conquer and, you know, share in the discipline. And I don't know how people do it without a spouse. That would have been terrible. Yeah. Let's um, let's talk about um, and let's talk with people who are listening right now 
okay. who don't know, they don't know the reality that, that you and I are um, knowingly nodding to. Um, right. They don't know the reality of life inside of a house, inside of a family with a child who has um, a mental disorder. So can you yeah. just give us a window, either into the classroom or into your home, um, because I think both of those are good windows um, and places into which you can take us. Sure. Uh, well, in the classroom, I worked with kids with emotional disturbance for 14 years. And so when we we actually adopted our daughter when she was nine. And so when Jacqueline came into our home, I thought, well, you know, I have experience. I've worked with kids with mental disorders for many years, but it's a whole different level when uh, children come into your home and mental illness comes into your home. It's like I said, it's all consuming. Uh, you know, you have all of the normal kid stuff. We have three children, so we have soccer practices and music lessons and school appointments and all of that. But then add the extra layer of counseling appointments and psychological evaluations. And in our case, as she became a teenager, police visits and, oh gosh, just so many things. And there's never um, downtime. There's never time away from it. You're just on constantly all the time, especially if a child doesn't sleep. So then you're, it's a 24 hour Kind of thing, so it's it's very very challenging. Um, so why can't you just make them go to bed? Like why can't I mean? I guarantee you, there's people listening right now who are like, what's what's wrong with what's wrong with Carmen and what's wrong with Leslie? Like why can't they make these children behave? Like this is a parent problem. This is a parenting problem, Leslie. It's an interesting thing that you bring up because in the book, I I kind of mentioned that even parents of strong willed children, and I do have uh, another child who was pretty strong willed um, when she was little wonderful kid, but, you know, just strong-willed. And, you know, you get all this advice. Well, just do this. Or, you know, when I had my strong-willed child, this is what we did. Like I said, there is no frame of reference. Um, These kids, wonderful as they can be, you know, Jacqueline was very intense in her positive emotions and extremely intense in her negative emotions. So if she didn't want to go to bed, she wasn't going to go to bed without a fight. And so mm-hmm. every single thing was a fight. And, you know, she and and usually it was around something that she wanted that we didn't provide, mostly a phone and social media, which was one of the number one points of contention in our home was technology. And so, you know, the, there's nothing about them that is like any other child where you say, well, you know, you're going to be grounded from whatever if you don't obey or whatever. It doesn't work that way. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to um, come to a place where they can, you know, stay in the parameters. Yeah. Um, We're talking with Leslie Schmucker. You can um, visit her on her website. Schmucker is, you know, yes, like you're thinking to yourself. If it's if it's with a name like that, it has to be good, except that (laughs) Schmucker has a C-H in it. So it's Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E, Schmucker, S-C-H. M-U-K, M-U-C-K-E-R. So, all right, LeslieSchmucker.com. Um, she's got an upcoming book, Broken Children, Sovereign God, Rejoicing in God's Goodness in the Midst of Childhood Mental Illness. But there are lots of blog posts related to this topic um, in the Broken Children, Broken World series at Leslie's website. So I commend it to you. Um, I commend you to 
use this as a resource and share it as a resource with others who you know um, who have a child in their home who has a mental health disorder, um, a mental illness. We love our children and we yes. need to learn to love broken children well in a broken world. So Leslie's going to walk us into that next. How do we do it? Um, how do we love broken children well in a broken world? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Leslie Schmucker. The subject matter is, you know, children who have mental health disorders, suffering with mental illness, their parents, their families, their siblings, the church. How do we bring the gospel to bear on this conversation? How is God sovereign in the midst of it? Broken children, sovereign God is Leslie's forthcoming book. Um, Leslie, let's, let's dig into this. Like, how do we love broken children well in a broken world? Like, uh, let's apply the gospel to this conversation. I think that the only way that you can is to apply the gospel. Um, if it wasn't for Christ, I don't think we would have hung in there as long as we did with with our daughter. Um, I did want to explain the, the term broken children. I did get a little pushback about that term. Um, and it isn't that the children themselves are broken. Um any more than we are broken. The world mm -hmm. is broken. And so that, that was the context of, of the choice for the title. Um, every day with Jacqueline, especially as she got older and the problems manifested more seriously, um, I would literally have to call on God's new mercies every single morning. And I would, the prayer a lot of the time was Christ Jesus, I can't, love this child. I just, I just can't do it on my own strength. And please give me the love that you have for her because I know that he loves her. Um, and the only way to love her was to call on Jesus to give me that love to love her. Um, because many, many times children with mental health disorders are not lovable. Mm. They they're violent. They target you. They know how to push buttons. They know how to get you upset. And they, um, they're just very good at it. And that, you know, she would try to uh, wedge between my husband and me, and we would have to really fight hard to stay unified. Um, and so all of these things really wear you down when it's in your home day after day after day. But the reason for the book is because I wanted people to know that when you are laid that bare and when you have no resources, God comes through every single time. He was just just so palpable throughout all the years uh, raising her. That's so good. Um, talk with us about um, God's sovereignty. Um, I know that 
you know, we have prayed in our family, um, not only for our son, but now for a granddaughter, you know, for God to to take away, um, for God to change the thing about them that um, leads to so many challenges for them. Um, And, you know, and and we know the life that is before them um, if God doesn't liberate them. And so talk about God's sovereignty and prayer and kind of unanswered prayers. Can you walk with us around in some of those subject matters? Sure. Uh, When when we decided to adopt Jackie, and when I say we decided, it was it was a God decision from the very beginning because there were just many, many things that were put into place that opened the door for this. And so, of course, when we brought her into our home, we thought, oh, this is great. God brought her to us. So that means she's going to be cured. And that means by the time she's a teenager, you know, her life is going to be completely put together and everything's going to work out great. Well, it couldn't have been further from the truth. So what we've learned about God's sovereignty and God answering prayers, God always answers prayers, but he answers them in his way and in his time. So when Jacqueline left us just before her 18th birthday and never looked back. And by the way, before I go more about that, uh, we do have a relationship with her now and there's a lot of healing and restoring going on, which is amazing. Um, But anyway, when she left us, we were like, God, you, you gave her to us. Like what, what was the point of all of this? Well, we're seeing over time what the point was, you know, in the, in the work that I do as a teacher, families coming in to with their kids that have mental health disorders and I'm able to really sympathize with them and and speak with them from from a perspective of somebody who's been there um and that's what God does he he's not a wishing genie he he just because we are lovers and followers of Christ does not mean that all of a sudden we're going to have all kinds of prosperity and in fact it might be quite the opposite but the in the suffering that is brought to us, God manifests himself there. And so he becomes who he is. You can see him more clearly in the suffering than you can when you're on the mountaintop. So um, that's what I mean by God's sovereignty is that, no, he did not remove the mental illness. He did not remove the trial, but he met us right in the midst of that trial. Leslie, you guys have three kids. Um, yes. I'm one. I'm wondering, you know, there's a spillover effect. You and I both know that. Um, oh, yeah. One, one child's mental health disorder is not isolated um, to that child. It affects uh, that kid who does want to go to soccer and that kid who does want to um, have yep. you watch them in a ballet performance. But you can't because the other right. child is so disruptive and demanding. Um, right. Can you just talk with us a little bit about that reality? Yeah, I do have a chapter in the book, um, uh, the effects of mental illness on siblings. Uh, When Jacqueline came to live with us, our son, Michael, was just graduating from high school. So he was out and in college. So it didn't impact him as much as our younger daughter, Claire, who was 14 at the time. And she was all about it. She was on board. She she wanted to adopt. But um, suddenly she is a sibling to a little girl who's stealing her things, um, who is just pushing her buttons. And, you know, pretty much chaos reigned in our house on any given day. And it was very hard for her. Um, I wish not that I'd ever wish to go back on anything because 
you know, our life is what it is, but we made some mistakes. We, we, I wish we would have listened to her more. I wish that we would have been more, um, just, just had more of a listening ear for her, but we did try to, uh, whenever possible, make sure that we were going to her softball games and she was in plays and performances. We did manage to do all of that. Uh, because I didn't want to shortchange her. But again, I was not a single parent. And so my husband and I could divide and conquer. Um, but she is 30 years old, has four beautiful children, and has a wonderful perspective on it now. Um, I wish she was here with me right now to talk about this from her perspective. But um, she and Jacqueline have reconciled, and Jackie has apologized to her. And there's mm. been forgiveness, um, which was just very sweet. Mm. I love that. I, I love that um, you can bear witness and testimony um, to redemption and restoration and reconnection yes. and forgiveness yes. um, because, you know, those of us living in the midst of it, right? Um, and particularly those who are um, living with a child, like, you know, when you talk about the the necessity to involve law enforcement or for them to show up and those kinds of things, you know, I you're, you're talking about... Um, struggles that are also then like publicly embarrassing, if that makes yes, sense. So uh, maybe, um, maybe, I mean, I, we don't have much time, but maybe um, one minute on what neighbors and friends and the church can and should be doing. There is a chapter on the church and that was very important for me to include that because our church, Great ba- Grace Baptist of Millersville in Pennsylvania was a model church for people who were the, were Christ to us during the entire Um, time that we had her. We had people who were willing to take her for the weekend. When she went through a time when she didn't want to sit with us in church, we had people that would just take her and sit with them and put their arm around her and make sure she was, you know, tracking in the service. And um, so it was amazing. But but there are, um, and in the book, I talk about this, there are churches that don't do that because they don't know what to do. They don't know mm-hmm. what to do for or with the families because the kids can be disruptive. You know, you have a little kid in Sunday school who is, you know, toppling chairs or being disruptive. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do. And so um, it really is an opportunity for the church to step up and be Christ. We did have wonderful neighbors. There was a, <laughs> we do have wonderful neighbors. There was a time though uh, we were trying to get Jackie in the car and we were bodily carrying her to the car and I know that there was a neighbor walking her dog and I know that she was like what are they doing to this kid yeah. so you know, if if people don't understand it could look pretty rough um, no it can it totally can I mean I yeah. have this this scene I have played this scene out in uh in you know in the corridor of a hospital I have played this scene out in a parking lot I I yeah. have yeah, I I know what you're talking about. I've played it out in a grocery yeah. store, Al, and it just left the car. Oh, I'm just like, yeah, I, yeah. good God, just we're going to get groceries some other way. We're, we're leaving. Yep. So, yeah, right. Leslie, thank you. You're so real. Um, this is such a gift. Uh, we look forward to it. I hope you'll come back and we can talk more, particularly Absolutely. when the book is released. Leslie Schmucker, you can find um, resources at leslieschmucker.com. We look forward to her upcoming book, Broken Children, Sovereign God, Rejoicing in God's Goodness in the Midst of Childhood Mental Illness. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Wow, how did that go so fast? Yes, we will um, We will circle back around to several of these conversations in the future. What a, um, what a wonderful time together today. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Read... 
stand in front of a mirror, read to yourself um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Memorize a portion of it. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.